and um, I haven't been feeling very well. I'm not really feeling very well today, so if I've not been as huggy as usual, it's only because I'm not trying to pass on to you inadvertently what I'm wrestling with, fevers coming and going and whatnot. But I am trying to feel well enough today to go to the Lions game, so um, <laughs> someone has invited me, and um, so at the end of this uh, service this morning, if I slip out a little prematurely, you will know that I'm not dying or anything that I know of, but uh, I'm going to go to the game with my friend who will be parked outside at noon. This is the 60th anniversary, by the way, of our last championship, so it's kind of significant in some... This is the year. Only a Cubs fan and a Lions fan would have that kind of of optimism. So uh, we've been in this series on Acts. I've, I've heard good things about every teacher and what they've shared on the book of Acts and uh, wish I would have the discipline to listen to all the other talks. I have not, uh, but I've tried to do my homework for the ones that I've been assigned. And I want you to remember that the reason we chose that um, that book, this book, the history of the early church, the first church, the Acts Church, is because that's what we're trying to become. We're, we're uh, not pretending that we're there yet, but we're trying to be. In fact, all churches are called to become an Acts Church. And so um, I, I want to just say this word of encouragement to you this morning. Please don't despair at the struggle to become an Acts Church. Um, for example, I know some of us are struggling a bit because we, we felt like we would have a new senior pastor before now. Um, if you remember the timeline, we formed the search committee back in September, but they really didn't start looking until January. And you may not know this, but it is very typical. In fact, if, if you're going to look at averages, it takes 12 to 18 months for most churches to land a pastor in this kind of a search. So that may be discouraging to some of you, um, but hopefully it'll be encouraging to others that we're right on point. We really are right on point. And referencing the Acts Church, I want you to think of the Acts Church. I want you to think of the early church because they had constant struggles, and yet they had no lead pastor in any of those churches. They had no senior pastor. It wasn't a category in the first century church. So I know sometimes we think, what are we going to do until we get a new senior pastor? Well, you're going to follow Christ. And, and we're going to stay together because we've been called not to follow a particular leader. We've been called to follow Jesus together in a community. So we're going to stay together with our brothers and sisters, and we're going to, we're going to hang in there. We're going to support each other, and we're going to wrestle through tough stuff together interpersonally, communally, because we believe in Jesus, and we believe he is the king, and he is the light of the world. That's what we're going to do. And, uh, yeah, that's why we're doing this study. So, and, and I want you to remember that even with all the struggles that the Acts community had uh, around the world, the various Acts communities, um, and even though they had no lead pastor, as they kept following Jesus, as we, I just encouraged us to, um, the Holy Spirit forged them into an entity that literally turned the world upside down. And um, we're no different. So 
you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't be analytical and, you know, ask your questions when you need to. Of course you should, but don't despair. Um, just follow Christ. And, and let's, let's see what he brings us. Because he has, quite frankly, more vested interest in us doing well than we do. Because remember what he said when he left the planet? He said, you guys are staying, I'm leaving. And if you all don't, if you're not me, I've got no, I've got no presence. So he has more vested interest in us doing well than we do. All right? Okay. So let's stand and let's look at Acts chapter 20. Remember, they've just been in the uproar at Ephesus, the riot. After the uproar had ceased, uh, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece, and he stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And then there's this list of names of brothers that uh, began to uh, accompany him. He picked them up along the way. They were going to accompany him to Asia. Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derbe, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at uh, Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. By the way, you notice the uh, popping up again of the plural, first-person pronoun, we. And in Acts, it goes back and forth, they, and then we. And most scholars, not all scholars, but most scholars think that when there's a we section, it's Luke who has joined um, the team, and he's the one who is writing, and he's writing first-person. Many many of the, the we sections have a lot more detail, like you're seeing in this section, probably because... There's somebody that's on site, and he's recording this as he goes. So verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So don't be whining around here, all right? (laughs) There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, (laughs) and in in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man in alive. And this is one of Luke's metaphors. He'll he'll state... uh, uh, a very a strong positive in this kind of a negative way. And he says, and they were not a little comforted. All right, you may be seated. So if you check one of the screens, you'll see um, a map, and you'll see um, Paul left Ephesus. He went all the way into Macedonia, which is up where it says Neapolis, Philippi, Berea, went uh, Somewhere along here, some scholars think that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And though this map doesn't show it, they're now coming back, and they're, they're popped into Troas then. Um, I'm sure you can see it, but in case you can't, it's right here, right there. And he's on his way um, back to Jerusalem and was hoping to get there 
by the, he was hoping to get there by, by Passover, but he got delayed, and so he's hoping to be there by Pentecost. So um, he finds himself in Troas. They stay seven days. Let's talk about this little story here in verses 7 through 12, which is where I'd like to focus us and what Luke is trying to say. So he got together with the brothers and sisters, the believers, on the first day of the week, and this is the first clear reference in the New Testament. The believers began to gather, Jew and Gentile, in the name of Christ on Sunday or on the first day of the week. First clear reference in the New Testament. Probably they met at night because um, in the ancient world, Sunday was a work day, so they didn't have the day off, and so they met at night, and... um, It says they broke bread, which is probably a metaphor for taking the Lord's table. So after the Lord's table, verses 8 and 9 say that uh, Paul spoke to them. And in verse 8, the way the New King James translates, it says, He spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Um, One translation said he prolonged his speech. The tense that's used here is the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense... The imperfect tense in the Greek language is the tense to describe something that goes on and on and on and on. And so he went on and on and on until midnight. Now, I wasn't going to read you this quote, but I thought it was really good from F.F. Bruce. He says, church meetings were not regulated by the clock in those days. And the opportunity of listening to Paul was not one to be cut short. What did it matter if he went on conversing with them until midnight? Interesting, you know, interesting. I, I got to say this. I, I, I speak at a lot of places, um, and there's, I mean, there's this thing, man. I mean, you get 29 minutes and two seconds, and if you don't stay, the, I mean, they're, they're nice, but you wonder sometimes if there's a trap door that's going to open up, and, and you will get the the evil eye uh, occasionally from some folks, usually not the people that bring you in. But boy, if you, go, if you go over, you better have something doggone prophetic or from the Holy Spirit of God to say. I'll be honest, I wonder sometimes if that doesn't diminish what God's trying to do in us. Anyway, so there was a young man named Eutychus, which was, according to some historians, uh, they, th- they say it was a common slave name. So this could have been a young slave. Um, in the church. You know, a third of the Roman Empire was slaves. Very possible. Uh, A couple of different Greek words are used here to describe his youth. Um, We're not sure really how old he was. Some commentators conjecture somewhere between 14 and 20. And so apparently he'd gotten up in this um, windowsill in this third floor of this building, and a combination of the lamps that Luke notes, remember first person, that are lit, and the smoke have you ever been in a room like that where there's a, there's a lot of candles and the smoke and it's thick and it's, it's the midnight hour and probably Eutychus has worked all day? I mean, look, we can be in an air-conditioned building, isn't it true? Have you, have you ever been like this where you're trying to listen to what the guy's trying to say or the woman's trying to say and you just, you just cannot do it? I mean, you literally cannot keep your eyes open. You just can't. Are you afraid to admit that because I'm preaching here right now? We've all been in that state. Um, I remember going to seminary, hearing some of the best teachers in the world, teachers of the Scripture, and because I would work late in restaurants, I'd get home about 4 in the morning, couldn't go right to bed, got up, went to class, and I, I literally, 
sometimes it was like, Jesus, I love you, but my head was just down like this. In, in, in spite of these great teachers trying to teach you in the scripture, I just couldn't. I was Eutychus, but the good news, I wasn't sitting in a third-story window where there would have been no screen or no way to, to hold yourself. And so the text, the, the language kind of indicates he gradually fell into this deep sleep, and he fell right out the window and uh, uh, fell in such a way that he died. And then verse 10 says, but Paul. But Paul. He ran down, and then Luke, or, uh, Luke uses the same Greek word. He fell into a deep sleep, but Paul ran down and fell on him. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And he embraced him. This is, uh, I think, what the Greek language calls a hapax legomena, which means it's only used. I think this word's only used one time in the New Testament. Uh, Luke could have used other words for embracing, but he used one that technically means to embrace always in love and deep concern. And, of course, love always shows up when a follower of Jesus sees a situation where someone is being attacked by the enemy. And he, he, he goes after that person to try to rescue them. Love is always in the middle of that rescue attempt. And then Paul announced, um, while he was embracing him, he's alive. And I would say probably, I don't know if Paul did it this way because of this, but it gives me a mind of an Old Testament scene. Remember when uh, Elijah was with the widow of Zarephath? And um, her child had died, and Elijah stretched himself out on the child three times, cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And he came back to life. And there's another passage in 2 Kings 4 where Elisha did the same thing with the Shunammite woman and her child. Gives us a memory here. And any Jews who read this text would, would see the God of Israel, who is always speaking life into death, yes. not just in the Old Testament, but always, here through one of his, one of his servants uh, bringing life into death. And then Paul, <laughs> he, so the brother's all right, and it says in verse 11, he went back inside and started talking again. I mean, he, n- no shame in this man, you know. He didn't say, if I just would have cut my Sherman sword early, um, he wouldn't have died, and I wouldn't have had to bring him back to life. No, he just like, I got more to say. And so he came in. I love him. I love Paul. So he came in, uh, started talking again all the way to daybreak. And maybe they had taken the young man away for a while and, I don't know, put some olive oil on his wounds if he had any. I don't know. But they brought him back in. Um, the, the Greek word that's used here, it means physically living, and it's, it's a participle. It says they brought the young man in alive, but a better way to say it is they brought the young man in living. The participle is like this, it's an active thing. Alive is kind of a static thing. It's like, it's like Luke's trying to say, man, the enemy tried to kill this young man, but, but God intervened, and they brought him back in living. And the group was so encouraged, it says they were not a little comforted. Okay. So there's the story, as I understand it. So why, I think what we have to ask ourselves, this is such a weird story. Most of the time, the story isn't 
Acts are about, you know, Paul goes into a town and he confronts some, something. And it's very, it's very out in the open. It's, there's governmental structures involved. There's appeals to Caesar. There's openly demon-possessed individuals. There's something very magnanimous about what's going on in the book of Acts in terms of the gospel going forth. This is like a weird story. I don't think there's any other story like it in the entire book of Acts. So you have to ask yourself, if you're studying this book, why this story? Is it intended to teach that long sermons are really okay? No. I know. Somebody just said no. Good exegetical work. You're right. Is it to warn us about sitting in windows? Is it to warn us about sleeping in church? I toyed with that one for a while. I think there's two things, profound but simple. Simple to understand, profound to live, that I think Luke is trying to share. First of all, this is number one. This is an everyday non-magnanimous, very private in many ways, an everyday story showing the central theme of our lives as Jesus followers, and that is that we're involved in life battling death. So we've already alluded to a couple of Old Testament scenes, but you could go back to like the book of Deuteronomy where Moses spoke to Israel about the promised land. And it's all about, you'll see over and over and over and over and over again, life, death. Choose life or, or choose death. Because there's only two paths. You've got life or you've got death. God's about life. Everything else is about death. Don't choose death. God loves you even if you do, but please choose life all over the place in the Old Testament. And then you've got Elijah and Elisha and just the prophets and whatever. And then you get into the New Testament and even... The guy that wrote Acts, Luke Acts, remember in Luke? Key line that just came out and hit me harder than it ever has, even though I've studied uh, Luke 15 so many times when everybody's saying, "Why, why are we partying? Because my son, who was dead, is alive again. See the theme? Death, life. And then Luke, who not only told that parable, the only guy who told that parable, the only gospel author, you come to the book of Acts, you've got Acts 2.24, where Peter is preaching to the people in the temple court somewhere, and he says, this Jesus whom you put to death, God has raised up back to life, loosing the pains of death from him, his key message, that particular message about Jesus being dead but now being alive over 15 times stated in Acts. In fact, every time there's a major sermonic piece in Acts, the core message is, well, by the way, whatever you th- else you think about us, we're just telling you we're serving a God who took his dead son and raised him back to life. Yes. Three fifteen. Peter, um, when he's being accused of doing wrong by healing the lame brother who was on the steps up into the temple. He says, you killed the prince of life. He's called the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead. Chapter 5, verse 20, they were um, released from prison, Peter and John, by the angel. And the angel says, go into the temple and announce the words 
of life. Chapter 14, verse 15, Paul is in Lystra, and they were trying to worship them as gods. Paul and uh, his partner trying to worship them as gods, and Paul says, I want you to turn from these things that are dead and worship the living God. Acts 17, with the philosophers on Mars Hill, he he says, I'm going to talk to you about this unknown God. that you, You've got, a, you've got a, an idol here. You say he's an unknown God. I'm going to tell you who he is. He's the God who spoke into death and gave life to all things. Are you catching my drift here? Yeah. And so right there in the middle of all of this, right there in the middle of all of this, on a very normal day, brothers and the sisters are gathered for an evening worship service. There's nothing spectacular here. You, you get this? This is just life. Just get up in the morning, the alarm goes off, you're living. Just life. Just life. It's, it's this kind of a story for a reason. Because so many times we can look back at Bible stories and go, whoa, that's like a biblical story. And you don't really feel like what's being talked about is my life. This is just life. And there's a guy who is really of no account, at least in that era. He's of account to God, but he's not of account in this era. Young man, uh, possibly a slave. There's no plague going on. There's no war. This is, you could just say it's a complete accident. An exhausted young boy, is try, he's so hungry to hear the words of life that Paul is speaking that he, that he tries hard to stay awake. He could have just said, man, I'm, I'm packing it in, brothers, sisters. i got to go home. He's struggling to stay awake, and he falls out of a window and dies. I think Luke is trying to say to us, through this real-life, non-spectacular story, I think he's trying to show us how the enemy is always trying to take away life, that we're in a constant battle between life and death. If we are going to become more of an Acts church, because the church is us, I think Luke's trying to say, we have got to understand our mission, that we Every moment of every day, from the spectacular to the very seemingly unimportant, we are never not in a war as children of life with the powers of darkness and death. So this phrase came to me this week, and and I hesitate to use it because I don't want you to think I'm being disrespectful to, to our wonderful country, but... In our Declaration of Independence, there, there are three inalienable rights that are talked about. You know what they are? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't think there's anything about that in this text. In a perfect world, 
we live in a war zone. And I think some of us have drunk the Kool-Aid. Or we have moments where we drink the Kool-Aid. We go back and forth. Yours truly included. Where we think that really what we're to pursue, we might not even say it. Maybe we're too Christian to even say it. But really, we're pursuing happiness. Not only are you going to be sadly disappointed because happiness is so elusive. But you may miss your calling as a son or daughter of God who has brought you and me back to life from our death. We may miss the Eutychuses. Is that how you would say the plural? The Eutychi. Yeah, for sure. I think that's it. I took a little Latin. That are right, not in the spectacular stadium event or the, the, the big Bible study leadership moment. They're right here every day and they're dying I think Luke's trying to say to the followers of Jesus that will read this story hundreds and hundreds of years later, which we are today. He's trying to say you need to come back to the mission if you're going to be a church like these brothers and sisters were the church that we are called to be engaged in this battle between life and death. Hold on one second. I, I feel like such a Debbie Downer saying this. Like some of you might say, is there any joy to be had? Well, of course there's joy. I, I distinguish between joy and happiness. Joy is something that is, can bring a smile to your face, for sure. It's deeper than any pain we're going through. It's deeper than the pain of war. Happiness is more Disney World and birthday cakes. And I'm not saying that isn't good. I'm not, again, I'm, I don't think I'm a Debbie Downer. Sometimes maybe I am. I don't know. I'm just saying we are guaranteed Joy in the midst of the sorrow and the battle. We are never promised happiness and we are never called to pursue it. All the way through the Old Testament to the New, from the moment in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve left life and chose, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Our call has been to be agents of the one who is the life giver. To be about fighting that battle for life and death, physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way that death can impact us, we are called to be there as the church of the life giver, Jesus the Christ. And if we, if we choose something different, we can still be a church. But make no mistake, we will not be an Acts church. 
If you want to dabble with life and death, we'll do 40% of our life like that. God bless you, man. I'm not your judge. We all have one judge. I'm just saying we got one shot at this. And our generation, we is it. We and the other churches that are wrestling with something like this this morning. Life and death. Life and death. Death all around us. The enemy hates us, trying to steal, kill, and destroy. We know the one who gives life. If it, sometimes God will intervene and bring life even without us. He raised Jesus from the dead with no help from anybody. We sang about it this morning. But amazingly, he chooses to partner with the likes of us. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will bring laborers into the harvest. Are you kidding me? The second person of the Trinity prayed that? My brothers and sisters, if you walk out of here today feeling like, wow, what an oppressive talk, you will miss the point. This is the greatest privilege a human being could have on the planet while we're drawing breath. To partner with the God who created it all and gave life to it all to be about bringing life into death. Mm-hmm. Right. Malik, there is much mystery in life being lived into death. And we're going to talk about that in this last point. Much mystery. And they were not a little comforted. Malik says it's discouraging, notwithstanding. Well, heck, yes, it's discouraging. If, if every situation of death, in my view... And I hope this is the heart of Christ in me, not codependent Kevin. I hope it's the heart of Christ. In my view, every time I see death, if life doesn't win, I'm discouraged. And if you can blow that off easily, I don't know. God love you. I don't know. Is something died inside? I don't know. Has something gotten cauterized? Just a second. Um, they were not a little comforted. I wonder if the comfort that would speak into the encouragement or speak to the discouragement with encouragement would be more present if more believers in the world today would be the Acts Church. Because if we were speaking, living, bringing life into death, maybe there would be not as much discouragement or despair. Maybe, in other words, maybe God would say, good point, son, but I've told you what to do, and until you do it, don't expect me to bail you out. Good question. Yes. Pastor, I want to be clear. I'm not 
No. Thank you. What she said. I wasn't saying, I wasn't trying to make a judgment. I'm, I'm saying that it feels to me like sometimes in America, American Christians drink the Kool-Aid of, no, our mantra is life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I'm calling us to another call because I think the New Testament, I think our Jesus calls us to another call. So, number two. There's only two. There may be 20, but I only found two. Life beats death through the power of Jesus of Nazareth in and through us. Primarily. Now, again, he can do what he wishes. And I'm, we're praying for miracles today in situations where even the television commentators, the newscasters have said, you need to know if you choose to stay here, nobody will answer your call. Have you heard some of those reports? And I'm like, that's sobering. That never happens in the Western world. Nobody will answer your call here. You think at that point I'm going, well, so sorry. I'm asking the God of the universe to reach his hand through the veil and rescue life into death. So sometimes he does that. Of course he does. But most of the time he chooses to use us. And if you're right now thinking, oh, yeah, her and him, and you're not looking at you, no, my brother, you. No, my sister, you. If you might say, well, I'm too young, no, no, you. I'm too old, no, 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 you. So I think Paul gives us a little bit of a model here, and, and maybe I'm making too much of this, but I don't think so. I think Luke is choosing his words carefully. Notice that he says, you know, Eutychus fell down, and Paul went immediately. He ran down. People usually die down somewhere. Even if they're wealthy and popular and famous and have all kinds of resources, when you get to the point that you're ready to physically die, you are on your back. You are down. And I think you could say, at least in terms of a strong metaphor, that when you're dying emotionally, when you're dying, when you feel like you're dying spiritually, it's a place of downness. Can you track with me on this? And can, I, can we say this together? Most people, if they're feeling up, don't want to go down. I don't want to feel that brother's depression. Man, I'm in one of those periods of my life right now where things are going pretty good. I want to just stay the course. Don't want to upset the karma. But if we're going to be folks who follow the Jesus of the life-giving Jesus to reach people who are dying, we've got to be willing to go down. And then it says, and he fell on him and embraced him. The language here, it's so strong. There is nothing tentative here. There's nothing aloof. I'm not saying it's impulsive. I don't believe in impulsiveness. 
for the most part, but the language is describing desperate movement, desperate and deliberate movement towards someone who is dead or someone who is dying in some way and then embracing them in mercy and love. And so instead of how, you know, we can have committee meetings on stuff, dancing around the death forever. Paul Paul ain't having no committee meeting. He's moved toward the dying. He went down and and the language uh, has him falling on him. And, you know, sometimes people will laugh at me. In fact, most of the places I go now, if I've been there twice, they laugh at me because, which is all right, I guess. Um, so why is it making me cry? I don't know. But I'm, I'm someone who's quick to embrace Occasionally it gets me in trouble. Somebody's like, don't touch me. And then you have to realize that some people have been hurt by touch. And so you go, okay, Lord, I've got to have more wisdom than that. Um, and so often for at least a month or two, I'll, I'll try to ask permission to hug. But look, I think if we, I think this is not about a certain personality type. I think the closer we get to the Jesus who is life and his heart for those who are dying, We will see it. And before we almost know what we're doing, we're going to be moving toward it. We're going to be embracing it with little thought of whether there's a germ that might get in or some death that might get on us. I think that's what we have here. We We don't have a, let me ponder, we don't have impulsiveness You can't, this doesn't stand apart from other scriptures. So, yes, asking for wisdom. Yes, yes, seeking counsel sometimes. Yes, but you catch my drift. This is like, this is like when we become the Acts Church, when we scatter today, I mean, if we could take a video of every one of our lives, there would be encounters of life with death all over the Metroplex today because there isn't a day off. By that, I don't mean you don't take a vacation. I'm just saying, how many, Carla can tell you how many times we've been on vacation and that waitress will walk up to the table and we'll just say, how you doing? And you know how the right brain is so powerful it can intuit whether somebody really means that or not? That's what the neurobiologists tell us. And so the person will intuit that Carla and I really mean it and they'll start pouring out their life. Now, we can't say we, no vacation just so we can, but sometimes there's a phone number. Sometimes there's a, could I call one of my friends that I know that pastors a church here? I know they would love to talk with you. Normal, every day, nothing spectacular, life and death. And then it says, When the death that is trying to fell humans, when we fall on that death. You see the language here? It's not accidental. Death fells us. We fall on. Life results. 
not everyone, to Melik's point, not everyone will be physically healed or escape martyrdom uh, or the effects of a hurricane. There are times, I think we sang a song about it today, when, when it doesn't work out the way, when, when the, the waters aren't parted for us to walk through. We will trust in you. But I don't want to stand before him someday and have him say, Son, I, I wanted to do something through you there. Why'd you run the other way? You were asking me to do something. I was asking you to do something. When death tries to fell sons and daughters of God and we fall on death, life results in some way when we fall on death and embrace it with the power of the gospel, the power of the love of Jesus that's within us that Paul fell on Eutychus with. Life somehow always wins. And sometimes we trust that even though we don't always see it. But we need to see it enough so that we are not a little comforted. Otherwise, we'll start saying, this is mythology. So, got to go, man. Kickoff is coming here. That was tacky. Sorry. Did you read this article in the newspaper the other day? Mom with terminal brain cancer gives birth. My brother. So, 37-year-old mother from Wyoming, Michigan, is a decision to made in May when she was still conscious but very sick with terminal brain cancer. She had a surgery, tumor came back, and she was referred at that point to U of M. To quote the newspaper article, she qualified for a promising clinical trial that doctors said, now get this, could prolong her life 10 or 15 years or even longer. By the way, before I read the rest of this, some of you might say, well, how, how radical are we called in the book of Acts to be about this? I mean, aren't there some, like, restraints? I'm just going to give you one verse, and I'll let you struggle it out with your own codependencies and issues. You have the same kind of issues that I have. Satan will try to jack this up in our hearts. But if we don't even get to this, we can't even work with our issues, right? Look at what Paul says just down from the text that we look at this morning. When he goes back to the Ephesian elders and he's telling them, he's giving his farewell speech. Look what, you've got to see this. He goes, verse 22, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, Acts 20, 22, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. You know what we tend to do with this? Gosh, that Paul. He's some kind of a special Christian. Please, my brother, he is us. Then notice what he says. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. How radical? This is where God wants to move us. Don't shame today if you're not quite there. I'm not sure I'm there. I'm really not. 
There's some issues right now that I'm struggling with that I had to talk to the Lord about today with tears running down my face where I'm not sure I'm there. So I'm not preaching down. I'm talking to us like we'd be talking in a living room. But where he's trying to move us, this being his vessels of life into death, is to get to a point where, point where even our own life is not dear to us. So back to our story. They told her that she could get 10 or 15 years or even longer from one of these clinical trials. They were very, very excited about them. She had five kids also already. Then they drew blood, performed an MRI in May. She was pregnant. His, her husband, Nick, said, me and my wife, we are people of faith. We love the Lord Jesus with everything in us. We talked about it and prayed about it, and I asked her, what are you thinking? She said, all those treatments, I'm not doing any of them. The doctor said, if you choose to do this, you will not live another 10 months. I promise you will die. And with everything on the table, my wife chose the life of our unborn child. She sacrificed, Nick said, her life for the child. Not counting her life dear, but giving life into death. Wouldn't we have loved it if God just would have healed her? He didn't. I have no idea why. But I will tell you this. The enemy had to be so angry because this woman knew that there's something deeper than living longer on this planet. There's a life that's more pervasive and more real, and it goes on and on and on forever. That was so full in her spirit that she was willing to give that life away to her baby and find death for a time here herself. By the way, you know what they chose to lay, name their daughter? Life. I wonder if the body of Christ would be a little bit more, because I think this sister, there's something very Acts 20 about this daughter of God and about her husband who was willing to release her. That if the world saw more of this, maybe they would be not a little comforted. One more thing. And let's not forget that what Paul is talking about here, what Luke is talking about, is exactly what Jesus did. He came down. He fell on us when we had fallen dead. He embraced us with love and compassion through his cross and brought us through his resurrection back to life. This is our life. Life battling death. Life beating death. That's what it means to be the Acts Church. Yes, Sue.
could have sent someone else to go and check on the dude, but he didn't do that. He didn't wait for someone else to go and check on him. He went himself. Sue said, it's very clear that what Paul could have done, since he was the man, he could have said to one of his lieutenants, he had a whole entourage traveling with him. Have you ever heard the statement, speed of the leader, speed of the team? I know our pastors, we want to be that kind of leader for us. Our deacons, we want to be that kind of leader. Our small group leaders, we want to be that kind of leader so that we're not asking someone else to do something that's not really living in and burning in us. That's a really, really solid point. So what I'd like you to do is since we've got seven uh, minutes till noon, um, I'd like you to uh, turn to someone next to you, and I would like you to speak what's cooking in you after the word of God this morning or after the, after the worship this morning. By the way, I was going to, tell you to say to our worship team, you know, where it talks about teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and I think we do that always here for whatever reason. This morning, I felt like each of those songs were like teaching me something. They were embracing me, you know what I mean? And I just felt like I was being taught. And you know what's interesting? Our worship leader, our worship leaders didn't say a word. They just spoke, or they just sang. So let me just say, after the whole morning, prayer and everything, what might God be saying to you? And please don't go out of here um, with any kind of shame about where you're supposed to be, but you're not, or whatever. Go out of here. I hope you go out of here with an invitation to go to a deeper place in your journey, a more meaningful place, a place that we can't really make happen in ourselves, but we can surrender ourselves to that place of being one who is about life, speaking into death. Amen? So let's talk to one another. If you have courage, if not, you don't have to share. But if you have the courage, or if you have the inclination, share with someone about what's cooking in you, and then in a moment, our worship leaders will come and send us home.